Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. Adult women friendships. Do you have a longing inside for belonging and connection? Do you feel shame that you have this need? Well, today's guest, Shasta Nelson, is here to talk about the value of friendships and how you can cultivate your own friendships. Shasta is the founder of GirlfriendCircles.com, a woman's friendship matching site in 35 cities across the U.S. and Canada. Her spirited and soulful voice for strong female relationships can be found in her book, Friendships Just Don't Just Happen, The Guide to Creating a Meaningful Circle of Girlfriends. And she also writes at ShastaSFriendshipBlog.com. All these links will be available on her interview page on my website. Shasta, Hello and welcome to my show. Thank you. Happy to be with you. So this this desire for friendships, I mean, you talk about it in your book about how there's, you know, all sorts of books about marriages, finding love, you know, how to even, there's parenting, there's parenting books. And I've had all of these experts on my show and you're my first friendship expert. Um, is that why you felt this need to write this book and do the work that you do now? Yeah, it actually started from just realizing that it's a lot of women, we are actually having a harder time knowing how to create those adult friendships. Like it's a skill that felt like it came just very naturally as a child. So we have this kind of scratching our heads being like, how do we do this as adults? And so it really started from me just wanting to go, there's got to be an easier way for women who are in a new city or just went through a big life change to raise their hands and say, I'm looking for new friends. Who else is? So it started from that. And then as I was doing girlfriendcircles.com and helping women match up, I started realizing just how little education most of us have ever had on the subject. And we find ourselves very having very unhealthy expectations. And it actually, there's a lot of stigma and a lot of fear that a lot of us have. And even saying, I need friends, like it sounds like such an, such an innocent statement. And yet we, we are afraid so often that by saying I need friends that somebody will misunderstand us as saying like I'm a complete loser nobody likes me <laughs> or I have no friends or I've never had friends or I'm a horrible friend and so it almost goes against our ability to even admit that we need friends and so I really that's where I just started saying wow that's scary because research is showing that we are actually replacing half our close friends every seven years so, I mean this is a pretty this is a skill and an area of our lives that is weighing, and I could go on and on about how important it is to our lives, but when you see how important it is to our lives and you see that we actually don't, most of us have never had training or, or you know, an education or a class or a book on the subject, I just was like, wow, we've got to start closing that gap because this is an area, unlike marriage, where you hope, hopefully you find one and you're kind of, don't have to keep doing that search over and over and over with our friendships. We really do. So we really want to become much more comfortable admitting it and doing something about it. Do you think once women admit it, it becomes um, easier for them to go out and pursue it? Yes, I do. I do. Because once you admit it, which is really the hardest step is that it actually acknowledges there's nothing wrong with me. I need friends, and that's actually a healthy woman who can really say that. And I treat loneliness, I treat that pang of wanting more connection the same way that um, other like uh, doctors would treat hunger or exhaustion or thirst. So it's my body's way of saying I want more connection, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's no shame in being tired at the end of the day. There's no shame in being hungry every four or five hours. There's no shame in needing to drink water. Like Those are things we need. We need human connection. We need those meaningful relationships. So I treat that as a healthy woman who can like feel that little pang of loneliness and push it down and not deny it, but actually say, oh, I actually long for more meaningful connection and that I'm going to do something about that. And as soon as you acknowledge that, you're right, you'd, it's much easier to then say, okay, now am I expecting it just to happen to me or is there something I can do to help facilitate that? I love how you mentioned that loneliness is just um, insight for us about needing more connection. There's a longing yeah. that's going inside and then it's not a bad thing. Right. 
Because yeah, I think we hold so much shame. Don't you feel, don't you sense that, that it's hard for us to actually admit that sometimes? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Because I do think it's like, well, there must be something wrong with me because I don't have these close connections. Mm-hmm. Right? It, yeah. Or I feel lonely, so I'm a bad yeah, person. A, yeah, so true. We have so much shame around it. And it's really just a very natural part of life. I mean, I threw that statistic out there about the friendships changing. And for most of us, we kind of dismiss it and go, eh, I don't know if that's true. And then when I'm talking to a room full of women or an audience of women, like your listeners, and I say, think about if you were getting married today, because that's one of those life moments where we choose bridesmaids, we choose our closest friends. And if you had to pick six women to stand there with you, like who are the six closest women to you that you would say are the women that I would have be in those roles? And then you just kind of name those people in your head. And then you think back are some of them different women than you would have chosen seven years ago? And chances are pretty high that two or three of the women you would choose today are not the same women you would have chosen seven years ago. In fact, you may not have even yet known some of them. And chances are just as high that seven years from now, there will be some shift and there will be two or three different people in that lineup for you. And when I say it that way, most people, you can see the recognition land and they'll say, oh my goodness, that's true. I mean, I'm so close to so-and-so, but I didn't even know her seven years ago. And so there is, so this, this shift in our relationships is not just a shift among our acquaintances. I mean, we're talking our closest friends. It is very normal to need new friends. And I guess that's what I really want to say is that there's nothing wrong with us. Life changes, job changes, relationships change, where we live change, and all of those different life stages invite more friends into our lives. So it's really, really normalizing that process is really important to me. One thing I want to bring up is that you also talk about how um, one woman, one friendship doesn't complete us all, right? With that right. we could have different friendships with different women that I guess are, that reflect parts, different parts of ourselves. Is that, is that it? And that's a part of it for sure. And I talk about the five different types of friendship, which is a, um, anyone can download that worksheet on my, on shaftonelson.com or in the book or whatever, but there's five different types of friends. And, and even in the far right category, which is our committed friends, our BFFs, even there, we need more than one person. And part of it is what you said. It's different friends bring out different sides of us. They, um, they expose us to different things. They love us in certain ways. They, they know how to like be present in various ways. But another part of it comes down to a very um, pragmatic thing. And that is that we are very vulnerable with only one person in that circle. If that person moves away, if that person has to go care for an aging mother, if that person gets pregnant, if that person just gets promoted and is traveling a lot, we would be at risk of resenting that person for not being there for us. And that's not that person's responsibility to be there for us 24-7. It's our responsibility to have a support circle and a group of friends that can, can take care of that and a, in a, like share that responsibility. So even if that friendship were super amazing, we still want to have two or three friends in that category that we could lean on. And, um, and those are, I'm talking about confidants, people that we can feel safe asking for something from and being vulnerable with. Um, and that's just, that's just good for our health. That's good for our happiness. I want my friends, my best friends, I want them to have other best friends. I want to know that when I'm on book tour and something comes up for one of them, that they're, that they have somebody else that they can, that can be there for them. I want my friends to be taken good care of. And I want that to be done by a group of us rather than any one person feeling that, um, that entire responsibility. Wow. Um, that makes me think about the, like the sex in the city book or not the movie, yes. right. And the women mm-hmm. that you refer to in your book, they have, there wasn't jealousy amongst who spent time with who in that foursome group. And it, it's, it reminds me of what you just said of, I want my best friends to have other best friends. I want my friends to be taken care of really well mm-hmm. instead of, well, we've often, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just want to say, we often think that best means, uh, like a, like, like a quantity, like that's just number one, like you are the best. And I view the best friend as a quality. Like these are people who have, who have the qualities and who have reached a pinnacle of quality in a relationship. So that's no, one person is not limited to being able to do that. We're very capable of loving and receiving love from a variety of people. So 
it's kind of like at the end of the year when people say the best movies of 2014. It's not like there's just one. I mean, there's many. So best doesn't have to be limiting. It's simply a recognition of a value of a relationship of what is achieved and what is practiced being together. You know, Shasta, I really love that because I did grow up with that idea that best friend is just that one person. Mm -hmm. And so with my kids, I have a 13, 11 year old, they're both daughters. And my youngest, she'll say, well, my best friends are, and she just goes through her list of people, Mm -hmm. right? Which is very different than what I learned. However, I learned it. I have no idea where it was like, no, you have this one person. And if they leave, they move, whatever, they don't like you, then you're all by yourself, right? She has her people and they're her best friends and she loves to be with them and there's not an issue if there was somebody else. There's no none of that girl rivalry or jealousy. And that were, that's what sounds like what you're talking about. Yeah, for sure. And I'm so glad to hear that about your daughter because that's one of the things I think many of us were ingrained with. We're used to asking, and who's your best friend? You know, and we mm-hmm. kind of like, we get asked that. And so we start believing that, you know, Amy's my best friend. And if Kristen starts playing with her, then that must mean I'm not that anymore. And I think it's such a beautiful thing when we can really acknowledge, like, I'm so glad that my best friend has other mommy friends with kids her age that she can just bond in that way with. And that makes me happy. And I'm so glad that my other friend has friends. Like I want their parts of their lives being fed and fueled and bonded. And I'm not, and this takes, I, this takes a certain maturity for sure. Like I, it's natural tendency to be, to feel jealousy sometimes. But if we understand the paradigm that somebody loving somebody else doesn't mean they love us less is um, really we can start showing up with a, with a joy that says, I'm so glad they're being taken care of. And I don't need to worry about competing with that person. I just, all I need to do is make sure that she and I are loving each other well and, um, you know, having the relationship we want to have. And that goes back to that, which you talked about in the beginning was why you started the friendship circles was that we had unhealthy expectations. So is this what, mm-hmm. one of the things you're meaning of the unhealthy expectations when we think best friend means the number one? Yeah, it's certainly one of the many expectations. I mean, one of the first uh, misconceptions we have is just that if we're meant to be friends, we'll just both know it right when we meet each other, you know, or if we both are, if I don't have a best friend, it's to no fault of my own. It's just because I haven't met the right person. And we use a lot of that kind of languaging as though we're almost like a victim in the process. Like it just isn't in the cards for me to have a best friend right now, or, you know, we just kind of treat it like it should just happen to us. And or that we should just meet each other and just both know we both mutually instantly love each other and that we both know how to like create this friendship. And I'm really, that's a really big part for me in the book is talking about you never ever meet a best friend. Every person you meet starts on the far left side of the continuum. I have these five circles of friendship that I was talking about. And the far left is the most casual of the friendships. And on the far right is the deepest, the best friends, the committed friends. And I, nobody, you are never meeting people and interviewing them and placing them in the far right circle. Every person you're meeting is meeting as a casual first time acquaintance. And it's as you both practice doing the behavior of friendship over and over and over and over that you move friendship into that continuum. So I think one of the big misconceptions is we're walking around dismissing each other because we think we have this one opening for a best friend that we're looking to fill. And we sit there and we'll size each other up and say, oh, she dresses more trendy than I care to. So we must, we probably wouldn't make it. Or, oh, she's a mom and I'm not. Or, oh, we have this age gap. And whatever our brain tells us is something that will be a barrier to us, we end up dismissing. Whereas when you really understand the circles of friends, you can say, wow, on the left side, on those casual relationships, I can let a ton of people in. I don't have to like have this little narrow uh, window of who I think I can be good friends with. And we all have evidence of people that we've become good friends with. Usually when you think about people we've worked with, um, those are not people we would have chosen to be best friends with out of a lineup of options. We became good friends because we saw each other regularly and uh, built that friendship up. And so we have the examples and the evidence, but we forget it sometimes. So I think one of the biggest misconceptions is just remembering that we that we can be friends with a variety of people and that we can let more of those casual friends into our life and then practice seeing who out of that, it's almost like a funnel, seeing who out of that starts developing into something more meaningful, but we don't have to dismiss people and reject people. 
um, just thinking that we can go find this one person and say, like, I mean, you and I, we could like meet at a coffee shop today and just be like, ah, love each other. Like we have so much chemistry. We have so much in common, but a best friend it does not make. I mean, we can absolutely think we want to be best friends, but that does not make a best friend. A best friend is not how much we love somebody. A best friend is how much of a friendship we have practiced together and developed and the behaviors that we've repeated over and over and over. So let's talk about that. What are those things that we need to do to cultivate friendships? There's, um, I talk about five in my book, but the two that I would say are the most, um, most important. One is consistency, uh, which means regularity, um, having being in each other's lives as regular as possible. So again, if you and I just absolutely loved each other and thought we were twins lost at birth and just knew we'd be best friends, we are not a friendship until we repeat that behavior over and over and over. So we have to like actually see each other regularly. And that's why we become friends with people at work. And that's why it felt automatic at school. And that's why um, anything that we join that has regularity increases our chances of actually building those friendships, whether it's PTA or choir or an association. Um, and if we don't join those kinds of things or have those kinds of things in our lives, then it's on us to actually put that consistency in as much as we can. So um, consistency is a huge part of it. You can like somebody all you want, but if you are not seeing them and building that up, you do not have a friendship. You just have a person you admire in your life, and there's a difference. Um, so consistency is huge. And the second one is – the second biggest one, I would say, is, is – um, what we talk about when we're together. So that could be vulnerability in a depth way, like actually sharing with like less and less of a filter is how I define vulnerability, where I can actually not be running everything through a filter, but actually showing up and knowing that I can say my amazing things and my, and my painful things and trust that relationship. Um, but vulnerability and sharing can also be in, in broad ways, not necessarily only deep ways, but it's actually what we talk about. So if you and I met at work and we talk about work stuff, um, one of the ways to build the relationship is to add a new area of our life in common with each other. So add, be talking about, you know, building, um, doing, going to movies together, or going camping together, or going to concerts together, where you're adding a part of our lives that we're adding glue. We're gluing, gluing another piece of our lives together so that when we don't work together anymore, we actually still have gone to museums together and we have that as part of our friendship to still fall back on. So anything we can do that like adds a bond or adds a new area or new commonality into our lives is a really, really strong way. So, so revealing and sharing, whether it's deepening, deepening or broadening, both are super important. Now, Shasta, is there a process about, look, when, okay, you and I meet, we fall in love. Is there too much that, too much vulnerability in the beginning that can be detrimental in building that friendship? I would say yes. Um, I have a whole chapter on vulnerability and I have this frentimacy triangle. Frentimacy is the word I use for intimacy between friends. And I have a triangle that shows that your vulnerability should be increasing as your commitment in the relationship increases. So I actually think it's very possible. Like you and I just can't go spill all our secrets and then be friends. Like that does not, you can't just, um, would be the equivalent of having a one night stand. I mean, there's no, there's no, there's no relationship there. It's just, it's just the intimacy without the commitment. So I would say, yes, I would say you can't just um, like sleep your way into a friendship <laughs> metaphorically. You really want and, and as ideal as possible. You want your commitment to rise a little bit with the vulnerability to rise a little bit. And I'll give an example of that. Cause I think it's, it's more helpful when you have like a, tangible example and we have time for it. And that is that I don't ever, I'm not saying that anybody should ever not be authentic or that there's information you should not share. Like, I don't want to go down the road of like, you shouldn't tell somebody until a third date that you have had a divorce. So I'm not talking about like that. I'm talking about how you share and what, how much you share. So for instance, when you and I meet, it would be completely appropriate for you, to, for me to tell you one of the bigger things going on in my life if it's really painful. So I don't need to hide from you that I'm going through a divorce or hide from you that I'm struggling with cancer or hide from you something. But it's how I tell you when I first meet you, it would be me saying, it'd be me saying, Karen, I, I, um, I just got diagnosed with cancer and it's, of course, incredibly scary and disorienting. That's why I'm looking forward to making new friends so that I can be like reminding myself that life is good and that life is fun. And I want to make sure that I have joy in my life during this process. And so I'm telling you something very vulnerable, 
but I'm also telling you in such a way that you know that I recognize that I'm not going to be leaning on you and expecting from you, and I'm not pulling you and trying to pretend you're my confidant when I'm only just meeting you. So it's being honest, but it's acknowledging that we don't have the relationship. I haven't put enough money in the bank to be making uh, withdrawals, and friendship requires deposits and withdrawals, and so vulnerability has to be increased. Whereas on the far side of my continuum, if I was with a really, really close friend and that was all I was saying, that would be inappropriate. If all I was saying was, I just got diagnosed with cancer, but I just want to show up and keep having friends and be fun and enjoy myself, then that would be inauthentic. So for my closest friends, when there's strong commitment, then there should be strong revealing. And that revealing there would be where I would be. That would be the safe place to be talking about I'm so scared about my life. Has my life mattered? And what do I do? And everybody, all these doctors are saying different things. And I just feel panicky and I feel scared and I feel ugly. And, I, and that would be the appropriate place to be sharing our deepest fears and aches and feelings about the process with. So I hope that people can see the difference between those two. It doesn't mean you're hiding a part of your life. It just means what you're expecting from different levels of friendship should be taken into consideration based upon how much commitment that friendship has already developed. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So going back to the first example that you gave when she's sharing that she has cancer, isn't that also, you know, kind of taking that elephant out of the room, like acknowledging this is what I'm going through, right? These are the facts, Mm -hmm. but I'm not asking Mm -hmm. you to fix it or to become my support system. I'm just sharing one of my facts. Yes. Yeah, because why would you want to show up? I mean, I don't want anyone to ever feel like they have to hide a part of their life. I'm so it's never that, um, I mean, that's, that's a huge thing and we want to share that with each other. So we don't need to only be all rosy and happy and only share like certain good things until a certain level. But yeah, like you said, it's, it's not her fault. So if that's me. It's not her fault that I haven't developed a strong support system to care for me. So I, I may be motivated in my pain to go make friends, but it's not their, it's not my brand new friend's responsibility to care for me. It's my responsibility to develop friendships into those places where they can care for me. And it's not a new friend's, it's not a new friend's responsibility to do that. It's not their job. So we don't want to put that on them. And that's, it goes back to that having healthy expectations of the five different levels of friendship and uh, making sure that we're not expecting too much from a casual friend just because we don't have deep friends developed. I mean, that's a deep friendship role. And, um, and that's our job to make sure we're fostering those friendships to be able to support those moments when they happen. It, you know what it sounds to me, and maybe this is where people have a hard time. And this is at least w- with the people that I work with, this is what I notice. So maybe, you know, tell me where I'm wrong, but it, it's almost like we kind of, want life to be black and white because it's very crystal clear, right? Black, white. But when you have Mm -hmm. these colors in between, or if you have, if you call it the shades of gray, it's harder to know, right? Mm -hmm. So with with that vulnerability, it's either, okay, I'm going to be an open, I'm going to be authentic. And I remember when I was in my 20s, my early 20s, I was like, oh, authenticity means I just share all. And I've learned that vulnerability is earned, right? And that's Mm -hmm. what I practice. But that's much more in the gray area. Do you think that's what why people struggle with this? Because it's not as crystal clear of how much to share. Like you really have to kind of think about it, don't you? A little bit. And I think it's just overall, I think most of us aren't used to being authentic at all. So, Mm -hmm. and then when we want to be, like you said, we tend to just vomit our authenticity (laughs) on people without stopping and saying, is this a relationship that has the commitment to support this? And I think that's a really important, and, and if not, then that's where I encourage people. Like that's where therapists and coaches and People who are paid professionals, that's a great role for them. If you do not have the close friends yet to support you, then go get the help you need. But you can't just meet strangers and like grab your need can't just grab people by the collar and pull them in. Because here's one of the four requirements of friendship. Positivity. You cannot have a friendship without positivity. There is nobody out there looking for new friends because they woke up this morning and said, you know what, I feel like there's just not enough people in my life who need something from me. I just feel like I'd like to have a few more people that make me feel obligated and guilty and like (laughs) I just am never doing enough for them. Like I just feel like I want a little bit more of like that feeling of like never doing enough. So I'm going to go find more people who need more of me and make me feel that. Like nobody. We're all waking up and wanting more meaningful connection in friendships, it's because of the positive, the joy, the support, the happiness. 
And there's nobody out there saying, I just want more people crying on my shoulder. Like that's the definition we use, like a good friend or somebody whose shoulder I can cry on. But nobody is waking up saying, I want to find more people to cry on my shoulder. And that's a, that is an honor that is earned. And that is, that goes back to the metaphor of like the bank. Like you, you do get that close friendship is somebody whose shoulder you can cry on. But that comes after putting deposits of positivity in. And, um, and so it's not, it's, it's, we just need to be careful that out of our loneliness, when we're showing up to make new friends, that we recognize that we're making level one friends where everybody is starting on that far left continuum. And I think it's just so important to have that visual of five concentric circles in a row. And you may want the friendship that's on the far right side, that committed friend, that best friend. And I, and I applaud that want. And I think it's so important to say, that's what I want is a really close friend who can support me. That's wonderful. But remember that when you're meeting friends, they all start on that far left circle and they are slowly moved over to that far right circle. So it's just having healthy expectations that say some of these women may eventually be that, but I can't come and just demand that of them. And that does not mean they're a bad friend if they don't give all that to me because the expectations of a, of a left side friend is simply much lower. These are casual friendships and these are people we're friendly with, not people who are supposed to be bringing us casseroles, babysitting our kids and listening to us moan and cry. So um, I think it just goes back to having very healthy expectations that we can love all of our friends in all five circles, but friendship, it goes back to the friendship is not who we love. Friendship is who we have practiced repeated behaviors with. And those repeated behaviors are what build up a friendship. So that seeing each other regularly, that revealing and regularly, that positivity that's regular, the, the patterns that we practice over and over, that's what makes a best friendship. Um, not just us both liking each other and we can't just pinky, pinky promise ourselves into a best friendship. So I think that's just where it's healthy for people to see the, that it does, it is not black and white. There's a growth, there's a, there's a gradient and a, a shading there that actually changes. And you just want to be a little cognizant of that on a, at least on a big picture. Does that help at all? No, that helps. And it's great. And it did have me thinking about what about the people that are really negative or that are prone to be negative? Does that hinder them from creating friendships or do they find other people who are also really negative? That's a great question. Uh, negativity does bond us. There's research out there that says when we both hear ourselves complain about the same thing, it certainly can bond us. Um, with that said, most, most there's a fascinating research out there that um, I think it's five to one where they say every, and this is true of marriages, this is really fascinating, that any marriage has to have a ratio of five positive things to one negative thing. Mm -hmm. And what's really cool about the research that they showed is that it's not, it doesn't have to be big, big things. So one fight doesn't have to be made up with five amazing, amazing big things. It can be a, it can be flowers. It can be a, I love you. It can be a hug. It can be a good look, whatever it is. Um, but five positive things have to accompany our, in our lives that one negative thing. So what's really fascinating is they say, very few marriages ever survive and stay healthy if the ratio drops below five to one. I think they say ideal is like eight to one. And as you start dropping, relationships have a very difficult time surviving when it gets down to the three to one ratio or worse. And so I think that's very true of friendships too. And so it's not that we don't want to have, you know, being able to complain or to cry, but for somebody who's prone to be negative, that would be something they'd want to really be cognizant of is that, is that I want to still make this person laugh. I want to make sure they're leaving my presence feeling better about themselves and better about life. I want to make sure we're having a fun time. I want to make sure they feel affirmed. And um, so we want to do what we can to make sure that we're increasing that ratio as much as we possibly can because you can't eliminate the negative things in life. You just simply, you can't control it. There's always going to be stressors. There's always going to be misunderstandings. And so one of the things that we can do that's most helpful in our friendships and our marriages and our relationships is just do what we can to add positivity to their lives and to ours. You know, and that makes me think that it's important to also go in and do your own self-work of, you know, being negative all the time is just not a fun place to live in anyways, no. just with yourself. No. Yeah. And so do the work on how can you turn that around? And it's not about, we're not, you and I are not saying be inauthentic and say, oh, life is wonderful when it's been a crappy day. Right. No, no, no. But it's also about, you know, one of my favorite sayings is that you don't need to build a campfire 
and pitch a tent and build a campfire and then invite people along to sit there and story follow all the bad things. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. Right. So it you, totally. you you can talk about it, but let's not just all hang out and gravitate towards that. What because that doesn't get us anywhere but being stuck. Yeah. No, I'm a big fan of of being very authentic and of sharing the highs and the lows. And I'm a very big fan of like actually when I have when I when I lead friendship accelerators where I actually match w- women up in groups and they're strangers and I'm actually facilitating friendship, I have them pretty much right off the bat share uh, share a high and a low from the last week. So it's not talking about life being only rosy. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about how deep you share and what what to what intensity you share and what your expectations are around that sharing. To share and to hear them have them hear you is fine. And you can there's moments where you can. You can share more in depth, but to be clear that that person does not, in, that, in those early stages of friendship, to be understanding of what their responsibility is in your life and uh, what we, what we're, we just want to be cognizant that while we're sharing, we're not asking things of them or pulling them in or expecting them to act like a best friend when they're not. Mm-hmm. Well, and the other thing I think that's really, really important, like just this morning before we got on the air. Um, a girlfriend of mine sent me a text and she got into this, this fellowship program that, you know, she's been applied for and been interviewing for. And I was so excited for her. Right. And I was so excited. The other thing I was excited that she wanted to share it with me. Mm. And so sometimes we may feel like we don't want to be braggarts. Right. Mm-hmm. And do something. But the other side was what a gift she gave to me to share it with me. And that's totally. the way I felt like, how can I, I get to help celebrate in her happiness and her excitement. Totally. Yeah, and when I define vulnerability in my book, I have a whole chapter on it, and I talk about it's not just sharing the lows. It's actually for most, for many of us, it's actually harder to share the highs. Like that actually takes more vulnerability and it actually feels more difficult to us because what you just said, we don't want to come across as arrogant or bragging or like we're showing off. But in the truth of the matter is, and this goes back to those stages of friendship again, with my closest friends, if I can't show up and tell them, like, oh my goodness, you would have been so proud of me the way I spoke at that event last week. Like, it was just so exciting. I was up there and I was strong and I was doing what I'm good at doing and you could have seen the whole energy shift in the entire room. It was so fun. If I can't say that to my closest friends, then how sad is that? Because these are the people who are cheering for me and proud of me and are, and are able to celebrate with me. So I'm a very big fan. Like, I go back to that high-low question. What is the high of your last week and what is the low of your last week? And both some people find it much easier to share one than the other, but for all of us, it's the, the invitation is to learn how to practice sharing both and, and to receiving both because you're right. We need to be able to cheer for our friends, and if we can't do that for our friends, then who else in this world do we get to practice doing that with? So um, that's one of the, I would say that's one of the callings of friendship is to be a place where I celebrate you and I would want to hear about your successes and I would want to be one of your biggest fans and one of your biggest cheerleaders and help you help you stand in your strength and your glory in my presence. And uh, because if you can't do it with me when you know I love you, then it's going to be much harder for you to do it out in the world with strangers and with critics. So that's a place I want you to practice being, being your most amazing self. Well, and, and that goes to you, the people that you share with are probably the people on the right side of your diagram, right? They're the committed right. friends. You're not going to go right. and tell your contact friends this because it may not be that safe place. Correct. Yep. And that goes back to that, that whole, um, yeah, the, the triangle of like, as the commitment grows, so should the revealing. And that, and I think that's really important because sometimes don't we, don't we create, um, evidence for ourselves because maybe we shared but we shared with maybe the wrong people and then yeah. we got this information of oh see they they just believe I was arrogant so I better not go and talk about my highs because you know they're gonna have all this judgment about me yeah great great clarification absolutely and I think that happens a lot when you understand the five stages of friendship one of the things I've noticed is that a lot of women, when they think they need friends, like when they feel that little loneliness pain and they go, oh, I wish I had more meaningful connection, our immediate response is to start convincing ourselves that we don't need that. We sit there and go, oh, that's crazy. I have so many friends. I can't even keep in touch with all of them. Like, da, da, da. And we start naming a whole bunch of people we know or a whole bunch of people we're friendly with or a whole bunch of people who live in different states um, without acknowledging that what we might be craving is a, a couple close local friendships that are really deep and meaningful. And, um, and there's, you would not, well, maybe you would be surprised. It's, it's, it used to surprise me. It doesn't as much anymore. How many women claim that they're so busy and they don't need more friends until they start actually evaluating their friendships 
and then realizing that they really don't have that many close, meaningful, vulnerable, local female friendships. And when they get to that realization, they start realizing that no wonder they've been unhappy in a lot of friendships is they've been expecting, they've been wanting, they've been thinking in their heads that these friendships on the left side were actually some of their closest friends. And it may be that they were some of their closest friends, but it's not because they were had developed into right side friends. They were still only left side friends. And this is true. Like you've heard stories of somebody being asked to be a bridesmaid from somebody they barely know, or they sit there and go like, wow, I didn't even think we we're that close. And they invited me to be the bridesmaid. And um, those are moments like that where that happens, where that person, that bride, probably didn't have a whole bunch of really close friendships developed. And so she reached out to the people she was closest to, but that's not the same as saying these were really, really, you know, committed friendships that had been developed. So so in those kinds of situations, is it because people just don't know how to create friendships and how to practice friendship? Probably, yeah, and probably just that they haven't ever stopped and actually assessed whether whether these are the friendships that um, are what I need in my life right now. Or we get used to, we think at one point in our lives that we have a lot of good friendships, and then we don't reassess it a year or two later to realize like, oh, so-and-so's moved away, and I don't work there anymore, so I really haven't talked to these people for a while, and and this person had a baby, and I just, you know, we're still good friends, but we just don't talk as much anymore, and so it really takes a level of awareness to actually show up in our own lives on a regular basis and say, am I, am I fulfilled? Am I, do I have the relationships that are important to me right now? Am I fostering the connection and the belonging that are what I feel like I need? And, um, and using that, the five, the five um, circles of friendship helps us kind of do that evaluation where we can sit there and say, oh, my loneliness is because of that circle that I'm probably missing and so your loneliness and my loneliness might come from different places. And that's where um, I think a lot of us just don't ever stop and, and aren't aware of that. And, and let's be honest, like who's ever taken a friendship class or gone to a <laughs> workshop or that was not taught in our schools. Our parents didn't teach it to us. We just kind of picked it up from our own experiences and modeling on TV. And maybe if we had a mom that had really good friendships, we saw a little bit there, but we really have not, we've never been educated on this subject. No, it's so true. And for the listeners out there, I will have Shasta's The Circle of Friendships um, on the interview page. Uh, so when you listen, you can go back to the interview page and get that information as well as links to her website. So don't, as you talk about this, I think about, you know, in the shows that you refer to in your book, uh, Friendships Don't Just Happen, about, you know, there's sex in the city, there's friends, there's the Golden Girls, right? We just see these women who are there already, not how did they develop that relationship? How did they foster it? Yeah. And I love how you talk about this level of awareness. Like we can't get on cruise control in our life. It's about being aware and questioning and checking in. Are we creating the life that we want? That's what I hear you saying. Tell me where I'm wrong. Totally. No, absolutely. Is that we, some woman is not just going to ring your doorbell and announce herself as I am your new best friend. And even if she did, wouldn't you be like slightly freaked out over that? <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, it's just something that we, most of us aren't going to even recognize our best friends when we first meet them. And, but it all comes down to, yeah, intentionally fostering those friendships. So it's something that we have an active participation in. It's not something that we just are left being lonely in our living room as a victim to like just the right person hasn't come along yet. That's not true. Um, you probably, it's, you probably know people that you could develop into more meaningful friendships. And if you don't, then, then you have to get out of the living room and actually be, be meeting people. So we definitely have a lot of, a lot of um, opportunity to engage in this process with a lot of intention. Do you think Shasta that um, there's this issue of worthiness or being enough or even just limitations of, Oh, well, she's a really good dresser and I like to walk around in yoga pants all day long. So we can't be friends or mm -hmm. she's older than me and I'm not, or we, we have social different social economic circumstances. Do you think those are things that get in the way of fostering that friendship Definitely. So here's two things I want to say about that. One is our greatest fear as humans is the fear of rejection. Um, Rabbi Harold Kushner, uh, the author of When Bad Things Happen to Good People, mm -hmm. has a whole book that says every single fear stems from this one fear. The fear of death stems from the fear of wondering if we weren't good enough and enough. The fear of public speaking wouldn't be a fear if we actually didn't, you know, knew it's the fear of rejection that makes those things scary. 
So knowing that we walk around and everyone else is walking around with that greatest fear of being rejected makes it makes sense that we're walking around immediately kind of judging each other and saying, oh, we probably wouldn't be friends. And, oh, we probably, you know, because we're all scared of not being enough for each other or or the flip side is thinking they're not enough for us. And those are both the same, both the side, two sides of the same coin. Um, but it's learning how to actually not feel like it's our job to be rejecting and showing up with, I try when I see people walking down the street now, one of my practices is to say, I accept you in my head. I just look at them and just think, I accept you. And then my brain is looking for evidence of why I accept them, as opposed to starting with, uh, like, what's wrong with this person? Or what are they wearing? And trying to size them up. I, my brain changes when I start with the, I accept you. Like, you don't have to do anything. It doesn't mean I'm, like, committing my entire life to you. It's just me saying, I accept you. And now my brain is looking for evidence of why and, and showing up with an entirely different attitude so we don't have to like go into this rejection mode. But the flip side, that, the second point I wanted to make is the long research mode. Um, Ori and Ron Brothman are the co-authors of a book called Click, and they cite research in their book that um, studies relationships to say, can we tell what will bond any two people? Um, like if they're both moms, is that going to help them bond? And so they research all of this, to find, tracking all these relationships to say, what is it? Can we predict what is going to, who's going to become friends with who based upon certain factors? And what's fascinating is they say that it does not matter at all. And I quote that, I mean, at all, no no statistical difference. It matters not at all which areas you have in common with somebody, only that you end up finding a few areas of commonality. So what's interesting about that is that it says it matter. It does not matter more if you're both Republican or both Democrat or both the same age or both moms as it does if you both have the same name or you're both born in the same month or you both uh, went to a Madonna concert or you both like broccoli or you both uh, like jazz music. I mean, we, the things that we think are these huge, huge things, most of us walk around saying, oh, I can only be friends with people who X, like are my age or are single like me or who have kids my age. And they said that would be the equivalent of walking around saying, I can only be, I know it, I can only be friends with people who have my first, same first name. Like, I just know it. That's the only kind of people I can be friends with. And they said that's the exact same thing we're doing when we're walking around thinking that we have to have this one thing in common with other people, which I think is crazy because most of us really are very convinced that we have to have, if like, I can't be friends with somebody from a different religious belief system or I can't be friends with somebody from a different political view. And they said, that's just simply not true. As long as you find two or three other things that you have in common with that person, and they can be very small things, um, you, they, they say that the friendship is just as strong. Well, because when you say, I accept you, you're taking down that armor that we have, right? Which doesn't allow for vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. And don't we have that armor up of, oh, because I'm going to reject you so that you can't reject me. Yep. Totally. No, it's our, we act out of that fear more than most of us would admit we do. And we don't even, we're so, so subconscious, but we, most of our decisions are coming from that. It's where either it's making choices, I believe, or making choices out of fear or out of love. Like almost every single choice in life is one of those two things we're responding from. And uh, to me, I'd rather be responding from a place of love. And that doesn't, again, that doesn't commit me to, doesn't mean I'm accepting every single person as somebody I would live with or somebody like we're not, we don't have to make qualifiers. It's just simply, I accept you as a person. <laughs> it's uh, it's it changes the entire way you approach the world, which is huge for your friendship. So can, can you give the listeners an example of making a choice out of love? Like you're mean, you're going to say a jewelry party, you're walking mm -hmm. in the door. You don't really know anybody except maybe your girlfriend that you're going with. These are her people. How do you make that choice out of love? of being in this well, environment. That's a great, yeah. So my insecurities would automatically start being flared up. I'm an outgoing person and I still hate walking into a room of people I don't know. So at, right there, the awareness that I'm going to be insecure and I'm feeling that is really informative to me to say, okay, but I don't want to act out of that place because insecure people are more judgmental. They uh, tend to be sizing people up more. They tend to be feeling like they have to uh, posture themselves as looking good or hiding out in the corner and, and withdrawing, like whatever our, our coping mechanisms are. When we're out of insecurity, that's out of fear, and fear um, triggers all of our stressors, all of our stress hormones, and puts us in an entirely different mindset. So doing it out of love would be being able to say to myself, like, I'm okay just as I am, and every person here is all insecure too. We all are showing up with our own stuff. I'm going to walk in and try to be, uh, try to be just a, just a, 
a little orb of peace, a little orb of love. And I'm going to walk in and just, when I'm meeting people, just be like, hi, I'm so happy to meet you. And, and in my mind saying, I accept you, I accept you. And showing up and just saying, I'm not, I'm not going to fall for the default of criticizing or judging or trying to make myself feel better by putting other people down. And so it's really showing up with the awareness. Like, I'm, I'm enough. I'm enough just as I am. It doesn't matter what anyone in here thinks. And each of them are enough. Like, we don't have to come and do this little, like, little battle that we so often do. So for me, it's much more of an internal thing um, because the external actions might look the same for somebody on both. Like you could probably try to be friendly and do it from a place of fear or do it from a place of love. But um, internally, the what that does is it helps make sure that oxytocin and um, good hormones are running through my body and not, not cortisol, which actually stops your ability to bond and actually um, puts all your stress triggers and your body into high alert, high alert and stuff. So I'm actually keeping my body at peace as much as I can and trying to help be that for other people. Because we feel each other's energy for like mm-hmm. at least six feet out. And some people would say much further than that. So my goal in a setting like that would be to do what I can do to say, I want to be a, play, a person that people feel safe with tonight. And I don't need to go in there and try to impress. I just need to go in there and be able to relate and most people don't want to be friends with their with the people they're impressed by. Like we think we need to impress each other, but really that just intimidates each other. Like we don't we don't we aren't drawn to the people who intimidate us. We're drawn to the people who like us and who are kind to us and who are approachable. So we our fear would make us feel like we have to impress you. But really love just says, I don't have to impress you. I can just I can just be with you. I can just hear you and see you and relate to you and that's what I'm gonna to do tonight. So that makes me think about somebody who may have this deep, you know, longing, this loneliness and this longing for connection and belonging. But if they walk in that door and they put that armor up, right, where they're judging people, they're getting in their own way, aren't they? They are. We all do that. It's so easy to do. But absolutely. Yeah, what we want, and there's the irony, is what we want is connection. What we want, like when we think of what we want, we want somebody who sees us and knows, knows everything about us and loves us anyway. And yet, our very actions often do the exact opposite of that. Like, we just put up those walls and we try to act better than we are or hide and withdraw, but it's it's actions that don't lead to the thing we actually want. Like, strategically, it's not the right approach, just from a pragmatic level. If you have a goal of having a meaningful relationship, then just if you were just even being strategic about it, you wouldn't want to do the things that actually would prevent your goal from happening. So it sounds like to me, if if we're going back to that scenario of walking into a party that you may not know anybody, you know, and coming from that place of love, it's not that, oh, I love you and you're just so amazing. That's not what you're talking about. It's about inside saying, I'm enough. You know, I I accept everybody here. It's not about comparing and despairing. Mm -hmm. I'm enough. And it's kind of the self-talk and even just saying, oh, it's so nice to meet you and being a pleasant person instead of an armor where people go, ooh that woman was kind of a little um, tough to get to know. Mm-hmm. Totally. No, it just is, it's our own ability to show up and, and relate is the word that just lands for me is just being able to say, I don't need to, I don't need to intimidate people. I don't need to massage my image. I don't need to wow people. Like I can just come in here and be, we like people who like us. Like that is just a, that's a truism. We are drawn to the people who are kind to us. We like people who like us. So so let's like people, you know, and um, again, that doesn't mean you're committed to them for the rest of your life. You don't, I don't, we don't have to be scared of like letting that wall down. It doesn't mean that if we like them, that we now somehow have any responsibility to them after that occasion. It's just simply that I'm going to be a person who's kind in this world, who's going to help make sure that, um, that love and joy are passed on. We know that these things are contagious. There's amazing, amazing research that shows um, how contagious fear and, uh, and like sickness and obesity. I mean, it's amazing the things that they can actually say, um, they can track and see how we, how influenced we are and how much we feel. And uh, so it's just, I just want to be somebody who helps add a little more drop of joy in this world. And I think if, if we could show up with that attitude a little bit more, it would help make the pragmatic side of actually making friends a little bit easier. Now, I do want to put a little disclaimer because we do like people who like us, but it doesn't mean to become a stalker. Right. Right. So it's that it's that gray area again that we're talking about, about 
And, and I love how you talk about there's a level one friendship and, and it's about practicing and there's a, there's kind of a timeline because when it's somebody who all of a sudden turns into stalker, they're kind of taking that fast road to BFF. Right. No, a good, good clarification. No, absolutely. This is all very, it's a, it's, it, everything has to be developed and that we just go back and we say this over and over and over is that we are not meeting our best friend ever and everything is, starts at level one and moves to level two and so on and goes up to those stages and that's super important to remember. And it has nothing, yeah, so we're not stalking and we're not, so it, it doesn't mean we have to like railroad them and it doesn't mean we have to pull away. It's just simply showing up and both standing and uh, relating and connecting and then doing it again and then doing it a third time and then doing it a fourth time. And research is showing um, that most of us is taking six to eight interactions with somebody before we feel like it's somebody, the difference from somebody we're friendly with versus somebody we have developed a friendship with. So those are two very different things. Like I can show up in that party and be friendly with everybody. And that's not saying I'm developing a friendship with everybody. Those are two different actions. So if I if I go out on a coffee date or if I go to that party over and over and over and it becomes a monthly party, then um, if it bears out of my life after about six to eight months or six to eight times of being together, I would start saying these are people that I would probably feel much more comfortable saying are my friends now. But just going and um, being friendly with people doesn't make them your friends. Well, that's a great clarifier. I do want to talk about best friends and um, having different best friends because sometimes people will think again going back to what we talked about a bit earlier that you have this one best friend but you really talk differently about that can you say more about that kind of category of friendship that committed level of friendship yeah say more as in like describing it or well how does it work is this is this the sex in the city version where these are the four best friends and they have lunch on sundays or brunch on sunday mornings or can they come from different segments of our lives and maybe not all be interrelated together? Yes, yes, the answer is yes and yes, so it can be either. Um, in fact, most of us, it will be the latter. For most of us, it will not be that our best friends are best friends with each other. In fact, uh, research shows that only there's only a 50% chance that the two closest people in my life know each other. So um, it's, again, we go back to healthy expectations. The sex in the city scenario is probably is probably not the norm. Um, it can certainly happen and it can be developed. And I, I have like a Tuesday night girls group. And so certainly when we get together with that kind of regularity with the same group of us, we have that feeling. But the norm is that for most of us, the people who we would describe in that far right circle as our committed friends will come from very different places. So in, um, for me, I can use my life as an example. One of the people in that far right circle for me lives in Texas and it's over the phone that we talk every Wednesday at noon. And because we have that regularity and that re- that revealing and that vulnerability, she lands in that far right circle, even though she's not local. I would not want everybody who's in that far right circle to not live nearby, but she's one of them. But she's not she's not in my group here in San Francisco. Another woman who's in that group for me is a part of my Tuesday Night Girls group. and But not everybody who's in my Tuesday Night Girls group is in that group. So that's a good clarification. The Tuesday Night Girls group... Um, when you look at my five circles of friends, even though we have that kind of consistency, they don't all land in that far right side because um, I don't reach out and confide in all five of them outside of that Tuesday night. So one of them I do, and so she lands on that far right side. So when you look at my definitions of my five circles of friendship, you'll see that like the second category is common friends, which means we have something in common and it brings us together and our friendship is more or less dependent upon that structure like we work together or we are PTA moms together or we're both in the same choir. And so you can actually develop a very, very close friendship with somebody there. But if your friendship is more or less dependent upon that structure, then um, whatever it is that brought you together, when that changes, many people get their feelings hurt because they'll then look back and say, well, I thought we were good friends, but now that I don't work there anymore, I haven't even heard from them for six months. So I guess we weren't really good friends. And we get all kind of like cranky and, and all like mad. And I always say, no, you were really good friends, but you were really good level two friends. And that's the point of level two is having really good friends in that thing in common. But if you never practice moving that relationship to the right side, which involves taking that relationship outside of only what the one area of commonality was like, so we're not just work friends, but now we're work friends who go to museums or we're not just mom, you know, play date friends, we're actually play date friends who get together with our 
families and go camping or we're not just, you know, it's where you expand the relationship into other areas where you're gluing more commonality into it. So for many of those girls' nights, my Tuesday night girls' night, going back to that, if girls' night ended or if one of them moved away, I have not developed all of them into far right side friendships, even though I'm being vulnerable and consistent with them every Tuesday night, I would not put them all in my far right side circle because my far right side circle are the people that I have, uh, that I'm revealing with, that I'm consistent with, but it is also the people who I have more than one thing in common with and more than one structure in common with, I should say, so that it's not just Tuesday nights, but we also talk on the phone on Thursdays and Fridays or whenever we call each other and we're, we're more engaged in each other's lives. So for me, it's the people that I call and confide in on a regular basis that lands on that far right side for me. Does that help a little bit? That does help. And just to clarify, the, those women who are maybe in that Tuesday night group, but maybe they're more in the um, common friends circle, it doesn't mean they're less important because they fit um, a certain need within you, but there just hasn't been expansion on it, correct? They're not less valuable, that friendship. Perfect. No, that's exactly right. And so that's where this is so important is we are not placing people in circles based on how much we like them or admire them. No, I love all my friends. We are placing them in circles based upon what relationship pattern we have. And if I wanted to move one of those ladies over to the right side, then I know what I can do to move them to the right side. I can call and reach out to them outside of that structure and say, hey, let's go to a movie this weekend and start doing something with them outside of that Tuesday night structure. But all of us have to, um, we have, I mean, you can only be close to so many people. Most of us can't maintain that many relationships on the far right side of our circle because it involves a lot of time. Those are the people that we are very vulnerable with and revealing and confiding in. So most of us won't have more than, I'm not a big fan of everybody having the same numbers or anything like that. Most of us need more than two or three and most of us, you know, more than six or seven, we start kind of noticing a drop in joy. So I would say somewhere between three and six or whatever would be the ideal number there. For me, it's usually like three or four. I, so some of those women could be that if I actually felt like I had more time and energy for it. It has nothing to do with them. It just simply has to do with the pragmatic. I just don't have time to have that intensity of a relationship with every single person I like. And as we wrap up here, Shasta, I want to, there's one more thing I want to touch upon and it has to do with, so, you know, you have your five circles, the circles of connectedness, right? And Mm -hmm. where you place a person, does it have anything to do with where they place you? Great question. Uh, For the most part, I would imagine that most relationships uh, do have some level of mutuality, um, but not always. Like I gave the example earlier of it's very possible for somebody to invite you to be their bridesmaids or to a very, and you don't even feel like they, like you would place them on your left side and she may not have a strong right side. So she's placing you, she thinks you're her best friend or something just because you guys talk at work or something. And so it's very possible for two different people to have a very different experience of the friendship or to um, have different, to place people a little bit in the different thing. If the two had to sit down and actually like assess the relationship with me, I would guess that they would come to the same conclusion, but not everybody's going to do that. So it's very possible that somebody thinks that you're their best friend and you don't necessarily think that. And I say to that, as long as both people are getting the, um, have the, have the pattern in that friendship and are getting their needs met in the way that they want that relationship to be meeting their needs. And that's okay. It's okay. If I place somebody in category four and they place me in category five, it's okay. Like there's no, no harm in that. Um, But obviously for those of us who have the awareness and have the tools and have like a structure, like the five circles of friendship to actually be able to use, it definitely helps us be able to have healthier expectations of for our friendships and what we expect of them and what we feel like we need to give to them. So, I mean, a lot of women feel like we um, don't have time to give to everybody and we feel guilty for not, oh, we heard somebody has cancer and we should be taking them casseroles and we, we carry a lot of guilt for all of this, but it's really helpful to me to have those five circles of friends and to say, okay, so for these women in the far right side, these are the women I do anything for. But I don't do that for all the women in my life. I don't. They need to have, those women in their life need to have women in their in their fifth circle to be doing that for them. My role in their life is to possibly send a card or to possibly call and have a conversation. But that's a different, I give differently based upon where my friends are. I don't give equal time to all friends. I give most time to my deepest friends and, uh, and kind of 
goes down from there. So I think that's one of the ways we have healthy expectations. So in that sense, it'd be nice if both people judged it the same, but um, that's not very realistic usually. Well, Shasta, oh, as we wrap up, what are two takeaways for the listeners on cultivating friendships? Two takeaways. Uh, I would say admit if you need to have more meaningful relationships in your life, whether that's needing more friends or whether that's needing deeper friends or whichever, wherever you are on that, look at those five circles of friends and kind of assess your own friendships. That's super important. And the second thing I would say is if you want deeper friendships, if you're craving more meaningful ones, then the number one thing you can do is just be more consistent. So that means initiating a little bit more. It might mean putting something on the calendar, reaching out to them, getting it next before you leave. If you get together for coffee, before you leave that coffee date, say, hey, this was so much fun. Let's put it on our calendars while we're both facing each other and do it again. And so just trying to be as consistent as possible, the more time you spend with each other, the more quickly you will be able to grow that friendship into something that's more deeper and meaningful and sustaining to your life. So assess your friendships is the first takeaway. And the second one would be as be as consistent as you can with the, with the women that you want to be closer to. Chasta, thank you so much for being a guest today. Super welcome. Thanks for having me. I, like you said, it's, uh, it's amazing. It's a subject that's not talked about very much. So kudos to you. <laughs> this is Corinne Motokaitis. You've been listening to How She Really Does It. My guest today is Shasta Nelson, and her book is Friendships Don't Just Happen. I will have links to all of her stuff on the interview page. Thanks for listening to How She Really Does It. I invite you to subscribe to my weekly newsletter at howshereallydoesit.com. I do this show each week for you so you can now see the windows of possibilities in your own life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, not just the ones who have acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, maybe you can now see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Each week, I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and uncertainty, yet somehow they have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into this space so you can ask yourself, if that is possible for them, what is possible for me? Really ask yourself that. I would love to connect with you. Please join me at www.howshereallydoesit.com. And thanks for listening today. On she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wild.